Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cod Cabin, your one-stop shop for everything political and everything Massachusetts. I'm Jack Leary, and I'm joined by Adam Bass, Jesse Hahn, Logan, and special guest Ben Siegel, who is running as a Democrat for Massachusetts's 4th Congressional District. Ben, it's great to have you here today. Thank you, everyone, for having me. I hope you're all uh, being safe and uh, having a good time out there. It's amazing weather out there today. So, mm. We've had some great weather up here lately. I'm, I'm really glad to see it. Um, so I guess to open up, I just want to go into detail about uh, the issues page on your website as kind of a uh, niche first question. Um, you definitely seem to have one of the one of the bearer issues pages out of all the candidates in the race. You lay out your priorities, but you really don't delve into the weeds um, on a lot of issues. So I was just wondering if um, later in the campaign you plan on doing full issue rollouts on more specific topics. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have uh, actually gone into a lot of detail on a lot of our, uh, on a lot of the issues already throughout this campaign. We just haven't added them to our website. They're always evolving, but we've come out, we'll come out with continual issue statements on there. I mean, look, when you look at that page, let's think about the times that we're in right now. The only candidate talking about combating hatred, bigotry, and racism from day one not because of where we are today has been me. That's been a huge part of our platform. We have gone out with statements already on that. We've had emails that have gone out, social media that's gone out on that. We've been a leader on that. The same with uh, comprehensive and compassionate immigration reform. We were the first one to talk about a more comprehensive education plan as well that's part of it, including economic mobility. So these are things that we've been leaders on from the beginning. Yeah, uh, Ben, I, I, well, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming back uh, to another program here. And I, I want to talk about something that you've been participating in, that's the protests. Um, I, I saw a video of you on Facebook holding a megaphone. It was in Fall River, I believe, or New Bedford. And, you know, it, it seems to me that there is now a need for social issues talking in our race. It seems that you and Asani Lucky are really bringing that to the table. Do you continue to go to these protests these days? Are you going to try to find more time to do that? Um, are you going to be more active in what you do, especially in getting your name out there? It's a great question. Look, we've been over to over a dozen of these protests, vigils, rallies, and marches, right? Because we were talking about these issues already. The entire theme of our campaign, We the Fourth, is exactly what's happening now. It's all of us standing up, speaking out, and using the collective voice that we have to make real lasting change. That's the entire basis of our campaign. I mean, let's talk about what's going on with racism um, already. And we're gonna have an op-ed this week in the Commonwealth uh, Magazine that you'll see on this issue. I think we've been a leader talking about this issue. We know that there's been systemic racism in our country for 400 plus years, right? Starting with slavery, Jim Crow laws, segregation, and today's form of that is racial profiling and police brutality and excessive force and many, many other pieces. So our first step to all of that is, yes, we have to condemn racial profiling, excessive force, police brutality. We have to create more standardized rules and procedures and regulations on what is that excessive force. We need to make sure that we're reallocating some of the funds going to these police departments to community investments, to violence prevention right? There are a lot of different areas. We need a standard for police certifications and training. But if we just do all of that, which is a lot, but we, if we only do that, we're not really getting to the underlying causes of racism. 
underneath that is the systematic racism that we are seeing in our healthcare system, in our education system. I mean, look, we know in our education system, 20% of the students in Massachusetts are Latino and only 3% um, of the teachers are. If we're going to have role models and leaders that know and understand um, the perspectives of their students, they need to look like them and understand where they're coming from. We saw that in healthcare. We've seen that there's an adverse effect to those who are uh, contracting COVID-19, who are getting treated, who are getting um, tested. This is a real problem. But we've also seen systematic racism in our environment, in our affordable housing, or just housing in general, in transportation. But again, if we fix, and we will, if we fix those uh, systematic racism, if we just do that and all the other things I said before, we're still not getting to the underlining causes of systematic racism. And I think there's truly three underneath all those that we need to attack. Number one is we need, in our, especially in our black and brown communities, but all communities of color, to have access to decision makers. And we need to have more diverse decision makers. That's not just political decision makers. We need diverse decision makers who are teachers in our police and fire departments, on the boards and executive committees of our for-profits, non-profits, and private companies. This is extremely important. So if you're attending these rallies or if you're really enraged by what has been happening, and you wanna make a change, there are candidates in this race who not only are diverse, and I don't think you should ever vote for someone just because they're diverse, but they understand the perspectives of the diverse community, and third and most important, they have been advancing diversity, equity, inclusion for a while, and not just talking about it conveniently right now. So that's number one. Number two is we need to educate our youth at the earliest of ages that lies, prejudice, and bias can turn into hate, and what we've seen so much worse, death. We need to do that in an early age because I believe that no one is born a racist, no one's born a bigot, no one's born an anti-Semite, no one is born any of these things, we teach it. So we can get to it at the beginning. We won't have people who are racist teachers or racist police officers or racist accountants. We can uh, start working with that from the beginning. I also think we need to teach cultural competency and explicit and implicit bias training to our police officers, our fire departments, first responders, our teachers. We need to start doing that. Finally, we need to work on voting rights. I think all of you guys probably saw the drone footage of, of Georgia um, last week on Tuesday four hours in line and then people wouldn't even be allowed to vote. We need to stop the disenfranchisement of voters, especially in historically disenfranchised groups like the black and Latino community. We need to eliminate voting purging, uh, um, purging rolls. We need to eliminate partisan gener gen um, gerrymandering. We need to eliminate all barriers to voting, including restrictive voting IDs and barriers to voting early. We need to be able to vote by mail. We need to have automatic voter registration. I mean, these are just a few of the things, but when people can really vote and have the opportunity to vote for people that are gonna look out for their interests, then I think we're also gonna see change. So to me, we have three different layers we need to hit 
all together. And let me be very clear, no other candidate is talking about it in this way. No other candidate has actually worked on these issues before. And so I was proud to speak in Fall River about these issues. And I've been proud to walk in over a dozen protests and vigils and rallies across the fourth. All right, thanks for that answer. Um, we're gonna shift gears a little bit to transportation. I know transportation's um, on the minds of a lot of fourth district voters who have to uh, commute to work in Boston or in other cities. Uh, we spoke with um, Alan Casey the other, the other day. He said he supported um, subsidized uh, service for the MBTA and Jake Auchincloss has said that he supports free service, much like Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu. Uh, I was wondering where you stand on that and uh, what you imagine the future of transportation in the 4th District and nationwide would be. Right. So thank you. I think transportation is so important. Um, one, it, it helps people get from their modes of home and their hubs at home to hubs of where they're working, right? Which allows them to increase their living wage. But transportation, we know, is the majority of the issue when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. So we can tackle multiple things with transportation in this country if we're combating, um, if we're combating the climate crisis. What we're not seeing is a lot of talk about the connection between transportation and housing. We need to create transit-oriented communities that have affordable housing, standard rate housing, uh, subsidized housing around transportation hubs. We're starting to talk about it a little bit, but we need to do such a better job. And I am one who am so happy that at least the South Coast Rail seems to be back on tracks, for lack of a better term, in terms <laughs> of coming to Fall River, right? I mean, we know in Fall River, 20% of the residents don't have a car yet it can take them two to three hours to get into Boston because they don't have high-speed rail. They don't have a bus system that gets them um, to Boston efficiently. So this is extremely important. Whether it needs to be highly subsidized or free, I actually haven't made a decision on that. I am one who believes, look, on one end, if you have the means to pay for transportation, I think you should. But at the other end, we know how difficult it is to put a system in place that decides um, who should pay and who shouldn't and the means testing around that. So I think that's a really complex issue. I think there's certain cities around the country who it's all free and it's worked really well. I could see us doing a combination of that. Um, free for students and elderly, free for in the inner parts of kind of Boston, but maybe on commuter rails, if you're further out, maybe that's where it would be um, subsidized uh, a, a lot more. So I think we need to look at the combination of all of that. We know the MBTA is a disaster, <laughs> right? Like they're still using infrastructure from the 1800s. And until COVID started, until I ran for this race, I took the D line and the C line every day almost to work. I know what that's like. My wife and I would take it together. And so one of the biggest things we need from our federal government is massive investment in updating and modernizing our infrastructure and making sure that it's done in a clean energy efficient way. Um, so I think, you know, we, it's hard to talk about transportation without talking about the environment and housing for me. Um, but it's something that we really need if we're gonna lift the voices, quite honestly, and the standard of living of the majority of the residents in the fourth. Switching gears again to coronavirus. I'm curious, how do you think Charlie Baker has done handling coronavirus? And do you think we're reopening too quickly in Massachusetts? 
Thanks, Logan. Look, that question's a tricky one, right? We're seeing a huge rise uh, in at least 12 states right now and in other parts of the world on COVID-19. We've been told in the modeling we've seen from MGH and others that we could see a, a, another stark increase at the end of July, August. So we have to be really careful. And there's this balance between also trying to find ways that you can open up businesses that have been closed for so long, but do it in a safe social distancing uh, manner. And I think that's hard. In regards to the governor, look, I feel bad for one thing with the governor, which was he was competing against 49 other governors for PPE, for federal funding. There was no federal standard. And I think he's done a wonderful job when it came to that. Um, I really do, because I don't think that should be happening. Congress and the president should have been able to stand up and say, here are the standards. Here's how we're going to get you PPE equipment. Here's how we're going to get you federal funds. So I think with that, I can understand how difficult it's been. Would I have liked to see him move a little quicker than he has? Not necessarily reopening, but getting information out there. Absolutely. And also protecting the most vulnerable. And for example, there was very little translation into other languages of important information that was coming out in regards to COVID-19. That is something that the governor, I think, should have been a lot quicker on. Finally, El Mundo, the largest Latino kind of newspaper in this area, jumped in and started translating at least into Spanish. But it took way too long for those translations to happen. There was also a lot of confusion around public charge laws, which are federal laws, but the government actually here knew a little bit more and could have actually made things a little more simpler for our undocumented immigrants to know what they could go for and how they could do it. The same came with making sure everyone had healthcare coverage and unemployment assistance. We just needed that information to come out both faster and in far more languages. So I think he could have done a better job with that. I think also, look, we have a huge problem coming forward, which is, you know, people are starting to go back to work. People will see what happens with school, but we don't have the funding for a lot of the cities and towns in the state because they've lost 80% of their revenue. So some of that funding needs to come from uh, the state and a lot of it from the federal government. I've I would have liked to see a little more leadership on that, especially our black and Latino businesses, many of which are solo uh, they're solo proprietors, and so they didn't fall in within the PPP uh, money. They didn't use banks that could be used. They're only one employee, and they're not working. They really fell through those cracks, so we need far more investment uh, into them. It's the same with childcare and childcare facilities. If people are starting to go back to work, they need to have the money to pay for childcare, and if they haven't been working for two months right now, they don't have that kind of money. And if it's going to be done in a safe way, that means less kids at each of these facilities, so we need more of those. So I think that's also a really important piece. So I would say mixed grades for me um, on the parts with the governor. A lot of things he's done well, and I think a lot of things he was just slow to getting to. Mm -hmm. Shifting to federal response, do you think that we need a second stimulus package? And if so, what would you want in this package that would be different from the initial one? I do think we need another, uh, another huge amount uh, from stimulus. Look, I, I mentioned a couple of these things that I would focus on. First is black and brown businesses. We need far more, and for, you can't be a 500 person business and be called small business and be compared to a two to three person one, right? Shake Shack, Roots Chris, they're not the same as your local bookstore. 
Um, so we need one that just focuses, I think, or more heavily on those small businesses. I mentioned the childcare and childcare facilities. To me, that's uh, a really big one. Um, I think we need money that's going directly to cities and towns for their schools. And in particular, uh, and this is something I think the governor has fell short on too, but it could be, he could get help from the federal government, which is 10% of Massachusetts students don't have internet and almost 20% don't have a devices. So the inequality education gap is widening. And so if that needs to, if, that, if we're gonna stop that, then we need to make sure that those kids have internet and they have devices, and that has to come with more funding. I think unemployment assistance and healthcare coverage for all undocumented immigrants who can't get it now is extremely important and must come from the federal government. We know when one person doesn't have healthcare coverage and gets sick, they're a danger to themselves and their family, but a danger to everyone. So I think we need to hit all of those. Uh, going off of that, um, I, I know that President Trump would want to say, oh, it's a blue state, it doesn't matter. So how do we convince, or how would you convince the public or the governor to say, listen, it doesn't matter red or blue, we have to come between those divides. What, where, what would be your approach to break through the divide of partisanship in, for funding and make sure that we get all the funding that we need? Look, the funding piece is not just a partisan divide right now under COVID-19. I think there's a partisan divide with almost everything else. Don't get me wrong. Um, but when it comes to COVID-19, it really, it seemed to be all governors were at it on their own, no matter if they were red or blue. So I'm not sure I necessarily agree right now is a partisan divide in terms of federal funding under COVID. Um, but look, like with everything else, you have to build real partnerships when you're working in DC, both within our own party and all the Democrats, but also across the line. And you do that by finding natural connections and finding areas where the constituents in Republican districts um, have the same needs as our constituents here. Let me give you two examples of probably the first two things I would do. Um, and actually it answers also one additional thing for federal funding. And that is we're the only industrialized country in the world not to have paid family and medical leave. That's not a Democrat or Republican issue. That affects everyone across the board. I mean, my wife, we have four little kids, and my wife worked for the federal government for 10 years, and two of our kids were born in that time, and we didn't get one day of paid family and medical leave. So that's something where we need to say to our Republican colleagues and Democrats all across the board, this is something affecting your constituents. You need this. Um, the second one to that is negotiating prescription drug prices under Medicare. Again, not a Republican or Democrat issue. Some Republicans wouldn't want to deal with this issue, but there are a ton that do. We need to be able to negotiate prescription drug prices. That's going to help all citizens. And there is not one district in the country that doesn't have seniors in it. So we need to find those areas, but we need to build relationships. And honestly, I think I am the best candidate on that. I have a track record of over 20 years building bridges, being a unifier, and being a connector in the Jewish community, in the Latino community, in the broader community. Um, it's something I understand. And the last piece to all that is the way you break down, you break down barriers is you need the government, the for-profit, um, our private industry and our nonprofit working together to solve these big issues. When they all do, there's not a blue or red. It's all of us. 
Um, and I think you bring up a good point today, Adam, on this. I mean, we know it's Flag Day today, right? And the flag is something that's all of ours. It's not one person's group. It's not Republican or Democrat's flag. It's a flag that represents all of us. And the flag doesn't discriminate against anyone based on their race or income or gender or sexual orientation or abilities, right? And so we need to stop discriminating against each other based on that. And look at the flag as a symbol of we are all in this together. So let's find practical solutions to move forward. You have a good point there. <laughs> uh, moving on to the issue of education. I know um, there's some great schools in the fourth district um, in terms of colleges and universities. I know you said you have four kids, so you probably thought long and hard about how to pay for their education. Um, I was wondering how you envision the future of education in this country and how, um, how we conquer the growing cost of higher education. Thanks, Jesse. Such, such an important question that affects not only those in college now, like many of you, but those thinking of college and those who went to college like me years ago who still have significant uh, student debt. Right. So we need and we also know that for the first time, I think in the last 25 years, the number of black and Latino um, college students is decreasing because higher education is less affordable and less accessible. So I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, the first thing is, is we need to make sure if you already have student debt right now, that you are getting, you are using and getting the same loan rates as the banks are. So right now students are getting student loans between six and 11%, but banks only loan uh, out to each other at 1.2 to 1.6%. Why aren't students getting those same rates? That's number one. And you, we should be able to refinance immediately in order to get that rate. Number two is we need to make sure both for people who are in college now and those who already have, that your student debt is going to be capped at a very small percentage of your income across the board so that you don't have to choose between paying your uh, student loans and figuring out rent or utilities. And so students can also choose different um, industries and sectors and jobs that they may not normally choose because they pay less, because they know their student debt won't be a burden. So I don't know what that percentage is yet. I, it's actually something we're studying while we were putting out our education plan. It could be 5%, it could be 2%, it could be 8% but it will be a percent that everyone can do over a long time without that worry. Now that's for those that, and you should be able to refinance to get to that uh, as well. For those that are not yet graduated, so their student loans are not yet taking effect, I think a few things. We need to make sure four year uh, colleges and universities are free for low income students, absolutely free and highly subsidized for middle income students. But I do, I am one that does believe that if you're a millionaire and you have the means to pay, that you should be paying for your four-year schools. Because if we made it free for everyone, who gets affected? Most economists will tell you this, that it actually ends up being that the low-income families end up paying some to, for the high-income families through taxes for that. And we need to make sure that doesn't happen. We need to invest tremendously in our community colleges. So where uh, if you're going to a two-year community college, again, it's free for low income for me, but it's also free for middle-class uh, families as well. 
Um, we need to stop stigmatizing that community college isn't good. It's a great option for so many people. Um, and, and it really works because they get high quality jobs coming out. We also need to make sure we're making major investments in our technical and vocational schools so that those students who decide to go that route have the skills and training that they need in order to go into the workplace. Finally, I wanna make this very clear. To me, education is not just about the youth. It's also about adult education. I am someone who believes in massive federal investment for free adult education classes so people have the skills and training to transition to new jobs and to new industries. We're going to see a lot of people transition out of, trans, uh, out of fossil fuel industry into a clean energy industry. You can't just flip the switch and tell them they don't have a job. Good luck finding a new job. You've got to give them the skills and training to do that. So that's just one example. There will be many. I am someone that believes in massive federal investment, and we can use our voc ed schools, our technical schools, and our community colleges at night in order to do that. So I think it's a comprehensive look at student debt, but the way we also do education. Sticking on the topic of education, I think this might be our last question. Uh, several candidates in the race have come out in favor of universal pre-kindergarten, uh, and I was wondering if you were in the same boat there. I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, with Jesse's question, it was just higher education, and I was afraid I might miss that. I am absolutely for universal preschool. Look, I have four kids, right? I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 5-year-old. Now, do I think you need to be a parent to be a good member of Congress? Absolutely not. We've seen wonderful people who don't. But because I am a parent with four kids going through the system, I understand that perspective of school. I understand what it takes to try to get your student up to speed to have the chance to be successful. I understand what it takes and the cost of childcare while school is going on too. It's really important. So I am huge on universal preschool because we know when you write and read at the earliest of ages, you have a better chance of success. Um, but it can't just stop there. We need major investments in our K through 12. You already heard me talk about education for cultural competency and racism and bias, but we need um, massive funds for our teachers, right? We need to look in Brookline. We just let go of 300 teachers um, two weeks ago. We need investments into those teachers. And the third piece is we need investments into infrastructure. Many of our schools are, are horrible. They haven't been touched in 50 years. How can we expect our kids to learn when their water is not good, when the air quality is not good, when the buildings are falling apart? So we need investments in all three of those sectors. Uh, so it's something I believe in uh, tremendously. And one more question about education. Charter schools have been uh, a big divide in this race. Alan Casey and Jake Auchincloss have both come out in favor of charter schools in at least certain circumstances. Uh, well, yesterday we just had Dave Cavell on, and he uh, was strongly opposed to charter schools. So I'm wondering, where do you stand on that? Uh, uh, so charter schools is a big question, and I'm probably someone in the middle, which doesn't help you guys, but let me explain why that is. First of all, we all know that if you're a parent, you want what's best for your kids. And if you're in a school district, and I honestly, if you're not a parent, I don't think you under fully understand this. So if you are in a school district where the schools are horrible and the only great choice around you is a charter school that has shown it's far superior, then I'm all for that. And who am I to tell another parent in that circumstance, you can't have what's best for your child. 
Now that said, I am not, this is where I'm in the middle. I am not for open charter schools, as many as we have out there. I am for charter schools in very limited situations where the schools around them are not performing well, and there's a charter school that is performing well. That said, I also think those charter schools have to be held accountable and need to be transparent. Those are two things, just like the public schools. I'm not for for-profit charter schools, but I have been to several charter schools where the majority of the students are Latino, because I'm the president of the national of the um, Hispanic National Bar Association of New England. I'd be the first Latino ever elected to Congress from Massachusetts. And this is an important um, piece for some of those communities because their schools are in districts where the rest of the school options are horrible. Now, let me also be very clear. We should never need charter schools in the first place, right? If we are actually investing in our schools, the teachers, the students, the technology, the infrastructure, then our schools will be so good that there shouldn't be a need for charter schools. I hope we get there. So when I say I'm for charter schools in a limited um, specific um, type of way, it's also for hopefully a limited time period. Um, but we'll see if they haven't, you know, our systems enough uh, funding into it. So Logan, thank you for that. What I think is honestly a complex question. Seems like that might be the uh, biggest source of disagreement between all the candidates in this race. Um, that looks like all the time we have today. This was our third interview in the 4th District Congressional Race. And uh, everyone, be sure to join us next time with Republican Julie Hall. Uh, ben, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we hope you all have a great day. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. And obviously, if you want to learn more or have any other questions or you like what you heard today, please go to bensiegelforcongress.com or follow us on any of our social media handles at Ben Siegel on Instagram and Twitter and Ben Siegel for Congress on Facebook. Again, I love that you guys are doing this. It's a great podcast. And I love to see that your base is starting to really increase with interest out there. And I hope it continues. Thank you. Too. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. All right. Take care. See you, Ben. Thank you.